The following podcast contains references to mental health issues that some listeners may be very sensitive to. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at rainnetwork.com. Welcome to the Rain Insights podcast from Rain Network. In this episode, David Lawrence, co-founder of Rain, speaks with Lisa Smith about her experiences with addiction in the corporate world. Lisa Smith is a former practicing lawyer and law firm executive, as well as a writer, speaker, and podcast host. She's the author of Girl Walks Out of a Bar, her memoir of high-functioning addiction and recovery in the world of New York City corporate law. Lisa also co-hosts the Signal award-winning podcast, Recovery Rocks. Lisa, thank you so much uh, for joining us and uh, sharing with us what I think will be a very, very interesting and I think constructive personal narrative and story uh, about your journey as a lawyer, a recovery advocate, and a writer and speaker. What I'll say just at the outset, as our audience knows, uh, this is an issue that I and Dr. Michael Lesser, who heads our medical and psychological network, have been deeply, deeply involved with. And indeed, it's actually one of the reasons why uh, I retired from Goldman Sachs to start RAIN and to address this. And the way we think about this, uh, and I'll tie this into something reasonably current, is that this is the one degree risk that we're all separated from. There, Everyone knows someone, everyone's been directly impacted. It's really a one degree of separation. And interestingly, I'll send this to you after our podcast, Lisa. Uh, there was a recent uh, survey, um, and I think it was republished uh, in The Hill, the Washington publication, about uh, the vast majority of Americans have acknowledged that they've been impacted by the issues of substance use disorder, addiction, and the related mental health issues. So I can't thank you enough uh, for making the time to be with us. And maybe I'll just allow you to introduce yourself and give us a, an overview of sort of your journey and what's led you to become a recovery advocate and a writer and a speaker. And I know you have your own podcast. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be with you. Um, and yeah, you really, you really nailed it on, you know, we all know somebody, we've all either been there ourselves or certainly have people in our lives who, uh, have, or currently are struggling with a substance use disorder. My own story, I think tracks pretty much, um, what similarly to what I've heard from a lot of people I've met along the way in recovery, I might. Uh, just at the outset say that um, I celebrated 19 years of continuous sobriety from alcohol and cocaine um, in 2023. And I was, you know, from from the start, all through my recovery, I've I've noticed a lot of similarities between my story and many others. So um, it's it's kind of... uh, there's a lot of common threads, I think. I 
was always, I grew up in a great family. I had, um, I, you know, I had, there was not any uh, substance use disorder around me, but it did in fact run in my family. And I never understood that it was something that I could possibly be genetically disposed to. I was one of these kids who was always um, anxious. I was like a gloomy kid. And um, the way I've often heard it put that really resonated with me was I was not comfortable in my own skin. Um, and I was also very um, type A, very driven towards perfectionism and um, putting a lot of pressure on myself to, to do well. And I, um, I really started, the first substance I abused uh, as a kid was food. Uh, and I've learned that this, I'm not unique in this at all. Um, I, my, uh, my major depressive disorder and anxiety disorder was not diagnosed until 2004 when I got sober. So, you know, I now realize when I was a little kid, I was self-medicating myself and that kind of gloom and anxiety with food at first. I didn't know, I, I didn't know why it made me feel better, but it did. Um, it gave me sort of relief from that feeling. Um, and then, uh, as what, as you might expect, I, by the time I was in high school, I graduated to finding the kids who, you know, liked to drink on the weekends. And once I had alcohol, I was, that was it. Then I knew like, oh, that was really the answer. I had that feeling come over me of like, oh, right now I get, now I think I understand how other people feel like normal. And uh, I, I had my first blackouts in high school, um, but and it's I always say that um, that addiction does not it's not contagious, but it runs in packs. So you kind of find your people. So both in high school, college, and um, and then in law school, I sort of found the people who also got relief, whether it was, you know, they didn't necessarily have to be as, um, as, uh, you know, craving it as I was, but, you know, people who would like to drink and party. And so when I would say to my friends in college that I didn't remember what happened last night, they'd laugh and say they didn't remember either. And so I normalized a lot of not normal, um, drinking and, um, when I got into, uh, you know, I, I, as I said, it wasn't a daily thing. It wasn't regular, but it was something I considered necessary for stress management, particularly in law school, um, that I thought it was good for me to go shoot the lights out all weekend because that allowed me to get rid of that stress so I could hunker down again uh, at the, you know, on Monday and get back to it. I always got great grades. Um, I graduated law school near the top of my class. I was on the law review. I didn't have consequences at that point. Um, and then when I won sort of the big prize and became a junior associate at a big law firm in New York City, um, that was really, it was the first time I lived alone and the level of stress that was there 
in that role, and not to mention the normalization. I always say that the legal profession is soaked in alcohol because it is. It's it's the default stress reliever, celebration, recruiting, whatever you're doing. There's a view, or there has been historically in the legal profession, that fun equals alcohol. And I became a nightly drinker as a first year associate um, in New York, and it took off from there. Uh, I. Never, I, I knew, I never even got a negative comment on a performance review. Uh, and finally, when I was a sixth year associate, I was miserable. I was drinking more and more. And um, I knew that uh, I was looking for ways out of practicing because I knew that at, at going into my seventh year and I had been talked to, I was on partner track, all of those things, but I was gonna have to take on this a lot more responsibility. And I knew that that was gonna be incompatible with my drinking and one of them was gonna have to go and it was not gonna be the alcohol. So I was able to get a position, I stayed at the same firm, everything was fine and I liked my firm. Um, but I went over onto the administrative side to work on business development with the partners, uh, which meant I didn't have to be on that partner track anymore. I thought it would help me get my drinking under control because it would remove so much stress, but in fact, it just gave me more time to do more drinking. Um, I stayed in business development throughout and I, I hit my bottom in April of 2004 and by then, I was a uh, director of client development at a firm, a big firm in the city. And the last 18 months of my using had been basically 24 seven um, around the clock. I had added in the cocaine with the alcohol, not for fun. Nobody does any of this at that, in the, at that level for fun, but to um, counteract the effects of the alcohol so that I could function. And I was able to work from home a lot. There's a bunch of reasons why no one saw anything going wrong with me um, that are specific to the law firm, to law firms, but also, um, you know, you, if people were looking at me from the outside, I had a great job, I had a great apartment, um, I had friends, I had family, I hid so much from so many people. Um, and one day, one morning on my way to work, I just crashed out and actually thought, I was on my way to work, it was a Monday morning, and I thought that I was either having a heart attack or had finally overdosed. Um, I know now it was a panic attack, and for some reason something snapped in my head, and I said, I, I, I don't wanna die right now. And I checked myself into detox. I, let, I refused to let my law firm know what was going on because uh, you know, this was 2004, we were doing a lot to break stigma in the industry, but certainly at that point, I was not going to let them know what was going on with me, and I let them know. I said I had a medical emergency over the weekend, I'm, I'm fine, I'm, I'm in the hospital, so I wanted my phone, but I'm all good, I'll see you next Monday, because I knew that if I was out for five days, they wouldn't be able to ask, you know, more questions than that if I was just out sick. Um, but I knew that if I was going to go to treatment after that, that I would have to, you know, have a doctor's note, whatever. I w and I wasn't willing to do that. So when I got out of detox after five days, I did agree to go to intensive outpatient at night, uh, two nights a week. I went straight back to work, which I don't recommend for anybody. And um, I 
found, I immediately started going to 12-step meetings. And so for me, um, the path back has been 12-step, um, which I still do today. And eventually, you know, it's funny because I was supposedly quote unquote high functioning. Uh, you're only high functioning until the day you're not, like when you get a DUI or you miss a court date. Um, but also I was not functioning anywhere near my potential. So after 10 months of sobriety, I was able to take a next level job and did all these things that, you know, I never would have been able to even interview for in the past. And I also ended up writing, writing my story. I found writing cathartic. Um, so I would write in the morning before work. And eventually in 2016, my book was published, Girl Walks Out of a Bar, which recounts my story. And um, I continued my, my most recent law firm job. I left law firms in 2019 as the deputy executive director of a law firm in the city. Um, and since then, I have been, um, you know, Speak. I speak to a lot of law firms, law schools, um, bar associations, all of that. And uh, I also have a podcast that I co-host with a millennial in, uh, in a very different kind of recovery. And it's about recovery and rock and roll. So it's called Recovery Rocks. And that's sort of my nutshell story. So Lisa, uh, first of all, thank you uh, for sharing a number of themes that I'd like to unpack uh, for the audience, and really a great deal of pattern recognition. Uh, number one, uh, very often people believe that this is an issue that impacts other people. And in reality, we know of many, many tales um, of individuals who are highly accomplished, highly educated, highly motivated, who end up for various reasons, um, struggling with issues of addiction and mental health. You're probably aware that the president of the New York State Bar made mental health and relatedly um, issues around substance use a priority for this year's um, bar efforts and has organized a number of committees and reports and initiatives around this. And in part, I'll share, I'll share with you my first experience with this idea that anyone and everyone can be impacted and affected. When I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office, I won't mention the name, but there was one of the brightest and most talented assistant U.S. attorneys. He was a couple years ahead of me. Uh, extraordinary individual and intellect. And what we didn't know at the time was that he, in reality, he was struggling with, among other mental health challenges, his depression. Uh, he ended up self-medicating with cocaine and other substances, and that in turn led to his accessing the evidence fault and uh, stealing from there, and ultimately was caught, apprehended, pled guilty, served time in jail, and obviously his career in law, you know, was significantly disrupted. But at the time, uh, I remember that, you know, again, this was one of the preeminent, the Southern District of New York preeminent law offices in the country with some of the smartest prosecutors, and all of this had taken place under our nose, and we had all missed it. And of course, it was viewed as a great uh, act of betrayal of trust, not a reflection of what I'll refer to as a medical issue. 
And um, as you recount your journey, just you know, some themes that resonate, which is the notion that there are co-occurring mental health challenges that people grapple with, and it can be depression, it can be anxiety, it can be issues around ADHD, and bipolar conditions. And in an effort to feel better, to get themselves better, uh, people do experiment with, with drugs, and they do it at various levels, grade school, high school, college. And unfortunately, the, uh, I like to refer to it as, you know, the pole is greased, and it's very easy to start sliding down that pole, where it no longer becomes a process of making rational decisions, your brain is taken over. Uh, very often this happens with people whose brains are not fully developed that they can't even appreciate the risks. And then the rest becomes um, history. And what I'm hearing from your experiences, Lisa, is that, you know, it's, it, it, there is a common, I'll call it a common bond with so many people. And, you know, the choices we make, and some of them are made very, very early, often carry unintended and very significant consequences that spiral out of control. That certainly was the case for me. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, the, the choices that I was making along the way from when I was, you know, let's say take it when I was young and started with food, it was just an immediate need to quell the noise in my head. Um, and, you know, in my, in my eight-year-old brain, uh, there was certainly no grasp of anything more than that, but it did start me kind of chasing that feeling, which went on, you know, I was 38 years old when I got sober. And, um, you know, the, the way I've described it, I, I completely agree with everything you just said, is that, you know, it owned my brain. It, you know, it, uh, there were so many things that I did and said and, and all of that that, you know, I'm so ashamed of. And then when, when you, or for me, I'll just speak to my experience, when, you know, when I, that shame that I was living with about how I was living my life, about the things I did, the things I said, only perpetuated it for me. It was just like gas on the, um, on the fire to say, uh, you know, I got to shut this down now. It just kept, the more that happened, the more I thought about it, the more I needed to shut it out kind of thing. And that went on, you know, forever. Um, and that was why, that's why I think for me, like the biggest thing that 12 step did for me was help me, you know, go through all of those things and clean my side of the street and figure out a way to live that I didn't have to be walking around in shame and guilt and fear all the time. Yes, so I, I really want to explore that theme for our audience because, you know, working with Dr. Lesser and some of the most prominent addiction specialists, uh, we have encountered people of all age groups, professions, economic backgrounds, um, and experiences, and particularly tragic are the parents that have lost children and lost children notwithstanding all the education they have, having enough disposable income to 
support and assist kid, but maybe not the knowledge or the skills that are necessary. And what we repeatedly hear is the role that shame plays in this and how it is such a significant impediment to not only the recognition that there is a problem or the acknowledgement, that's probably a better term, but also to the path of recovery and what gets hidden along the way, what is not disclosed, the psychological burdens of shame, of betraying people, of disappointing people, etc. And among the things that I don't think on a society level, notwithstanding a great deal of efforts, that has yet to be, I'll call it fully and accurately conveyed, even though the body of experts, you know, would just absolutely supports this, is that this is a disease. It's not a character flaw, it's not a behavioral flaw, it's not a personality deficit, it's a disease. And people come to attract that disease, which is chronic, uh, as you know, the number of years that you've had to maintain your sobriety indicate. But that people don't recognize that this is a disease, and not only should shame not attach to it, but it's everyone's obligation to remove it from the dialogue and from the, I'll call it the equation of relationships, whether they're, it's the relationship within a family, with friends, with an employer, within a school, etc. And I'd love to hear you maybe expand a little bit uh, about not only the burden of shame, but sort of what can be done to take it out of the equation, because it has been such an impediment to the acknowledgement of the issue, no less the effort to seek treatment, get the help one needs, and the commitment to recovery. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, the biggest, when I think about, um, you know, what kept me, and this has been borne out by the studies on lawyers in, um, struggling in the profession, uh, but what kept me, even though I knew for so many years before I sought help that, um, that I was addicted and that um, there were two things really. Um, one was that I had, um, I had the, the idea that I think a lot of us have, and a lot of you know people who um, are successful professionals and are are struggling with these issues. That um, you know wh whatever it was, I was going to be able to get it under control. Right? There was for me. I kept thinking even. Um, when it got to the point where I had to drink in the morning to get out of bed and get to work, I remember saying to myself, I know this is bad. I know that this is not sustainable, but I'm going to, I can, I'm going to get it under control. I can do that. I'm going to get it under control. Uh, because what hadn't I gotten under control, right? I had done everything I had set out to do in school, professionally, whatever. And then for lawyers, you know, we solve problems. We are, um, you know, clients come to lawyers with problems. 
And so why would I, it goes back to that idea that you were talking about a little bit earlier that, um, you know, you can't outsmart addiction. You can't, you know, it, it's, it's just, no, I couldn't uh, get it under control. And then it was a relief to learn. You know, I know a lot of people um, sort of dread a mental health diagnosis, but for me, when I was in the detox and I was told, listen, you know, you've crossed a line where you can never drink alcohol safely again. And, um, you know, if you don't drink, you're going, you're going to die. And the psychiatrist in the hospital said to me, I think, you know, what you've got is uh, an underlying uh, case. You've got major depressive disorder and an anxiety disorder. And I think you've been medicating it for you know, <laughs> ever since you started with food instead of treating it for what it is, which is a chemical imbalance in your brain. And so I was relieved because I was like, oh my God, there's an explanation for it and there's actually something you can do about it, you know? So that was huge for me. And now the way I explain it when I speak, because this is absolutely true, is that you know, the brain is an organ in the body, like another organ. And, you know, if I had diabetes, I would go to a doctor who specialized in that disease. I, you know, dealt with the kidneys. Um, I would take medication that doctor prescribed as prescribed, and I would make the lifestyle adjustments that that doctor suggested. So say diet, exercise, getting enough sleep. I have um, a chemical imbalance in my brain, uh, just another organ of the body, just like the kidneys, and I need to address that. So I go to, like, just like if I had diabetes, I go to a doctor who specializes in, um, in that disease. Uh, you know, while medication isn't necessary for everyone, for me it is, so I take the medication that that doctor prescribes as prescribed, and I make the lifestyle changes that that doctor suggests I make, and they are very much like this—the lifestyle changes I would make if I had diabetes. It's you know, getting enough sleep, exercise, you know, moving my body, trying to eat right, trying to reduce stress, and for me, not drinking alcohol. So, and yet, um, Lisa, let me let me interrupt for one second. Mm -hmm. And yet. Unlike heart disease, unlike kidney disease, unlike if you fell and, you know, broke your hip and you had to go through physical therapy or you tore your Achilles, or if you had cancer and you had to go in and receive radiation and chemo, with this particular disease, shame has attached and this sense, I'm really so glad you raised this issue. A sense attaches to an individual that they can control this themselves. Mm. So unlike the heart and the orthopedic and you know the issues of cancer, there is there are those impediments of the stigma that attaches, yeah. and and also this notion. And I know as part of you know the step program, there's the acknowledgement that. You're not in control. So I, I appreciate you raising these points. I just wanted to emphasize it for the audience and whether people are dealing with this issue directly or they have kids, these are two fundamental 
aspects of this disease or symptoms of this disease that can't be yeah, you know, highlighted I, I think that's very that thank you for for adding that because it is it's absolutely true and I hadn't necessarily thought about it in those ways but I appreciate that a lot um, yeah I think that it we need to be talking about the these issues just like we talk about any other health issues it's not you know it's uh, one of the things that uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the 2017 report that the American Bar Association did on the path to lawyer well-being. And what was so important for them to state in that report was that um, in order to be a good lawyer, one needs to be a healthy lawyer. And that means physical health and mental health. It's all just health and that that is how we need to think about it. I'm very encouraged when I talk to um, younger lawyers and law students. Um, I, I speak each year to the first year law students as part of their orientation at Vanderbilt Law School, and I was there just this week. And, um, you know, they have this next gen this generation has grown up much more conversant in the, in the language of, um, of you know, what mental health struggles can be and feel like, and there's much less, they have names for things that I never had. They have, you know, they view them in a very different way. And I think that's, they're the key to really um, shattering the stigma that needs to be broken. I, I love that, Lisa. Um, you know, the la language is so important. I, I watch with some bemusement in Washington as uh, they label legislation in ways that, you know, they th you know, will make it more acceptable. I mean, obviously the Affordable Care Act, but you know, um, you also have, uh, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, which even President Biden admits, you know, was a misnomer. It's more about climate. Um, but I'm watching in recent years, to your point, you know terms such as substance use disorder becoming part of the vocabulary and the dialogue, particularly amongst professionals and younger people. And that to me, uh, you know, if we can change the language and specific words, it helps. I'm not a, a big fan of, you know, the notion of addict and certainly not junkie. But when someone is um, suffering from substance use disorder, it takes on a different tone and I think a different message. I agree. I agree. And, um, you know, for people to be able to, I look at the most recent numbers um, in the law student surveys of how many of them identify as, you know, having struggled with depression or struggled with anxiety or having received a diagnosis of, you know, either or of those and i think back to you know that that's when i feel like we've come a long way when i think back to how that would have never happened um you know in my generation uh but then i i just see you know how much work there still is to do and your your narrative and your which your book details and what you've shared with us today emphasizes another theme that the issues around um, 
substance use disorders and and the I'll use the term the addiction to drugs and alcohol very rarely exist in a vacuum. There are co-occurring medical and mental health challenges that are often there. And so as professionals have shared with me, they view, you know, the, the, we'll call it the consequences that you experienced and lived as basically further symptoms of the underlying conditions. And the underlying conditions can be depression, can be anxiety, can be PTSD, can be bipolar, ADHD conditions. And I assume that that is something that obviously you have become increasingly aware of. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it all, it, 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 I, I like the way you put it, that none of this happens in a vacuum. It just doesn't. Um, I don't, you know, I, I think um, when I get asked questions about, you know, whether I think that there was absolutely nothing I could have done that, you know, when people think about with using terminology like alcoholic, um, that I was bound to be an alcoholic no matter what happened in my life, that that was just, you know, what, what I was programmed to be. I, there, it's an impossible thing to, um, to try and uh, an analyze because it, how, how could I possibly know what would have happened in a vacuum? None of life happens in a vacuum. And for me, That's right. um, yeah. the, the particular things, yeah, the particular things that it's all one thing leads to the next thing leads to the next thing. And, um, you know, it could have been, maybe it would have been different, but maybe, and that could mean maybe it would have been better. Maybe it would have been worse. It's really not, I, I think the question of whether, you know, I, you know, it, it's almost like people ask that question in a way to be like, well, that could never happen to me. Right. That was just something in, that was wrong with you. And no, there's so many factors out there that things happen in people's lives, things change, things, circumstances, um, that, that I think it's impossible to know. And we all, you know, we all need to be aware of the fact that um, this is something that is, uh, for lack of a better term, something like sort of in the water. And when, you know, it, Yes, I was predisposed to having these things happen. Um, I believe, at least, because I had a genetic predisposition and I have a particular brain chemistry issue. Um, but maybe I, I, it could be that I didn't have either of those things and circumstances in life led me to start depending on alcohol. It's, it's just impossible for me to say. Yeah, and what this goes back to, and I, I'm, I actually want to emphasize this because we have ended up working with and coming in contact with uh, Mike Lesser and I with so many parents who possibly didn't see, could have seen, and didn't know how to respond and react, is that very often the road to substance use disorders, alcohol, drugs, etc., begins with these underlying issues and people, this goes back to your point, Lisa, about thinking you're in control. They try to sort of self-treat, self-medicate. 
And in fact, things do feel better after a drink or things do feel better after try some cocaine. And again, the, the slippery slope follows. But that, again, this is, you know, there are co-occurring issues that, you know, potentially to your point, if they're understood, if they were understood earlier, if they were identified earlier, uh, could have been appropriately managed, treated, etc. But unfortunately, they often go unnoticed and unrecognized. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Um, and I know, you know, there people sometimes ask me, um, you know, did uh, what you mentioned or I talk, you know, when I talk about in more detail what, what it was like as a kid, people are like, well, why didn't your parents get you help? Why didn't why didn't they get you help? And my answer is always the same. Like it was the 1970s. Like nobody got, you know, right, right, if I yeah. had been saying, you know, oh my gosh, I'm, I, I think I'm depressed. If I even had vocabulary for it, which I didn't, um, you know, that they would have been at sea on that. They wouldn't have known what to do with that. You know, um, it, it just that, which is why I do think all that we're doing now and talking about it and bringing, um, you know, bringing these things to light and just saying, hey, yeah, these are, this is a reality and there's help and there's, you know, you don't have to try and struggle through this alone. And, you know, what you said before is so important about, you know, it's not a weakness. It's not a moral failing. It's not any of those things. Yet that was what I was terrified my uh, coworkers would have thought of me if they had ever found out. And I, we, we know well the, um, the judgments. Um, you had it all, you threw it away, right? Right. Okay, right. often hear that. Uh, I want to, I'm, I'm mindful of the time, and hopefully this can be a continued conversation, Lisa, uh, because of our ongoing efforts here at Rain. But I want to talk a little bit about the road to recovery. Not just yours, but maybe we can weave in uh, because I've often, and I, you know, Dr. Lesser has drilled this into me. It's not one size fits all, and it's not one path or, or failure. But in describing your, your narrative, uh, you raised a couple very important points. One is that this is not a straight line, recovery is not a straight line. There's, I'll call it, if I can use, I'll draw my experience from Goldman Sachs. There's a lot of intraday volatility in the, in the process. <laughs> yes. And, and very often it is steps forward and then steps to the side and possibly steps, giant steps back uh, because of relapse. And again, I just keep quoting uh, Mike Lesser, but he, as he reminds me, it is a chronic disease, and like every chronic disease, there are relapses. If you have cancer, if you have a heart condition, etc., you know, there are periods of remission, there are periods where everything is fine, and then something can happen, and, you know, you have to adjust accordingly. Um, but you also more than intimated in your description, Lisa, um, that you were trying to manage your own recovery, um, outpatient, 
and still maintain a, I'll refer to it as a high performance, high functioning jobs. And I think you, you said earlier, which you wouldn't recommend. Right. And so maybe you can take some time and talk to us uh, about the, not just your recovery process, but you know, basically what you've learned about the factors that can lead to, again, not a linearly successful recovery, but long-term, even with the ups and downs. And you also intimated that this is not something you do on your own and the need for professional help and obviously support. So maybe um, you can share with us so I, I don't want to call them the secrets of recovery, and I know it's day by day, and you, you know, it's always day by day. But some of the things that you've identified that have been helpful, not just to you but to others. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, I was so physically sick. I had been, like I said, I had been using around, like from the moment I woke up until the moment I passed out. Um, for about 18 months before I went into the hospital. So for me, the biggest thing right away was the physical transformation. Um, I had not woken up without a hangover in over 10 years. So um, I really grasped very quickly to that. But what, what kept me, um, coming and realizing that I needed to do this was I, and I think so many of us have felt this way, felt so alone in my addiction. I felt so alone in my disease and I felt like nobody could possibly understand me. And when I went, I remember the first night I went into um, the outpatient rehab I sat down in the circle and I had no idea what to expect. And I listened to what people were talking about and I w immediately was like, oh my God, I'm home. Like these people, these people think like I do. These people, these are people like me. And I thought I had been, you know, we always think we're the only one. I had thought no one's ever going to understand this. No one's ever going to understand me. And then I sat in a room with people who, you know, from all different walks of life that had, you know, that I had nothing necessarily in common with. But this one thing was like, I remember thinking these people know me better than my own family right away, <laughs> just in that, in that brain, um, sense. You know, I remember one of the things I shared early in that, in that meeting or in that group was how I used to, you know, be on my way to work in the morning and I would see somebody, you know, walking a dog and they'd be, you know, looking like they were, the person was like up and showered and, you know, having a normal day. And I remember just wishing so badly that I could be that dog instead of being me. And I remember when I said that, like if I had said that to anyone in my family or my friends at that point, I, I don't know how they would have responded, but everybody in the room, you know, maybe they didn't feel that same way at any point, but they nodded their heads and like, I get it. I get how you could think that way. Lisa, I, want, I, want, I, I have to stop you because you're making such an important point. I don't want to 
Sure, sure, yes, please, that, please. So much, so much of this, I'll, I'll refer to it as disease, is about loneliness and isolation and people not having, you know, the word support is used loosely, but the support that you're describing is, I'll, I'll call it, you know, the support of kindred spirits who actually understand what you had been going through, what you are going through, and what you will be going through. And it's the people, the shared experiences, and as much the messengers as the message. But the fa- I, I, I'm truly appreciative that you identify that this is so often a disease of loneliness and isolation, which is why people continue to struggle, and they struggle in silence and anonymity and they work so hard to hide what they're going through as opposed to feeling comfortable to open up about it and you know find the support get the support that they need so a long-winded way of saying uh, thank you for raising those points of course of course yeah and that was i mean that that was enormous to me of it's not just me and there are other people who get it. And really, you know, since that time, um, one of the keys to recovery, to my own recovery, has been sticking close to those people, community. So what you're saying, loneliness and isolation are so much of this. And especially when you feel, um, you know, like you're in a, in a profession like the law where any, you know, any kind of demonstration of that would be, you know, perceived as a sign. Like I could have never thought of of sharing that kind of thought with anyone who had anything to do with my career. Um, and there is just the um, the community that uh, there is, and and that is really what what has tied me so closely and, you know, all kinds of recovery, any path, it doesn't matter if it's 12 step or another path of recovery that someone chooses, but to find your community, I really, I really do think is essential. And, um, you know, I think there, we get the, the other thing that kept me really going was, um, that, each day, I really did, I mean, for me, the most valuable of all the, you know, kind of slogans or things that, you know, we're told in the rooms of 12-step, um, just for today, has truly always been, I have never said I will never drink again. I always, 19 years later, I still say I'm not drinking today. And I don't see why I would take a different choice tomorrow, but I'm, I'm just not, there's no reason for me to even be thinking about whether or not I'm going to drink tomorrow. It's just not a question. Um, that it, that I'm facing today, and I don't I don't dwell in that place. But as you build one day after the next day after the next day, it becomes like all of a sudden I look back after a few months, and I was like, look how much better I feel. Look how much better I'm doing at work. Look how much I've I, I've also had some of my biggest belly laughs in the rooms of AA. So you know, look at these people I've I've found and why, you know, it became pretty quickly, I had too much to lose if I, if I drank again. And so I, I didn't want to, and I was terrified of 
relapse and, um, you know, relapse is part of most people's stories. And it's like you said, it's not a linear journey. And, um, you know, the important thing to know for anyone who is going through it, I just always, you know, am, am praying and making it very clear that you just come back. This door is always here for you. Everybody is always rooting for you. You can't, um, you know, like when I've had, um, I sponsor women in 12 step and I always say, you know, here's, you need to know at the outset, there's nothing you can do that's going to make me upset with you. I am here, you know, to, you will always have unconditional support for your recovery. And that means if you do, um, you know, experience a setback, if you do relapse, come right back. We're right here for you always. And I think, I think that's really important. So Lisa, I keep maybe repeating myself. I don't want the, uh, I don't want these points to be lost um, on the audience. And particularly when someone's trying to help a friend and even more particularly when someone's trying to help a loved one and a, a child. Is this, if I might summarize a little bit, Lisa, it's a no judgments atmosphere. Yes. And a recognition that there, you know, there are setbacks. And we talked earlier about the role that shame and isolation can play, but similarly the shame and isolation that somehow I failed. I had been, I'll use your term, sober for a year or two years and, you know, I fell backwards. Um, I disappointed my parents, I disappointed my colleagues, I disappointed my AA sponsor. And it's this notion of how important it is, I'll use the term to provide unqualified support and understanding. And I'll even, I'll use the love word, Lisa. Yeah. So that, pe so that people understand that not only this is a disease, you know, would somebody, would, 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 God forbid, somebody had a second heart attack, okay? Had been trying right. to right. do everything and exercise and eat well and, you know, maybe, you know, maybe went off their diet, had a second heart attack. Would they feel that they couldn't tell their loved ones about it? Would they feel that they couldn't acknowledge that heart attack? And so what you're describing, and, and again, there's a role, as you indicated, you went through a process of detoxification, which obviously is a medical process. But after the medical process, the process of being able to speak to others, to be honest, to get their unqualified support and love, and also a recognition that as, you, as one attempts to get their life back together, there invariably will be setbacks. I know of people who have lost, you know, their mothers or their fathers passed away and that spiraled in them into depression and other things, right? Or, you know, who had business setbacks and that led them back to alcohol or cocaine or what have you. And so the points that you're making about in having an environment of unqualified support, understanding, Patience, if I can use that word, Lisa, right? Mm -hmm. uh, sure. And love is so critical to the ongoing process of recovery. 
That's what I'm hearing from you. Yes, absolutely. I 100% I agree with that. Um, you know, it is one of those things and, you know, being completely, it, it, it's having gone through when you, and I think part of what tied me so closely to those people that I immediately identified with and realized I wasn't alone around in my group was that we had all been through a shared awful experience. And when that happens, you don't ever want to see somebody go through that experience again. And if they do, you want to help them, you know? So the idea that there is judgment as opposed to just another outstretched hand saying, let me help you, you know, get better um, is just wrong. I think, you know, there, I never, when I'm in, uh, you know, when I'm in a, in a room, in a 12 step room or in any kind of recovery meeting room and somebody announces either they are new and just starting this journey or somebody announces they're back after a relapse, that's the loudest applause in the room because you know we get how hard those things are and we want everybody else to succeed we they tr we truly are no one is rooting for anyone you know judging somebody in a, in in a way it's just like oh my gosh thank god you're here thank god you're back stay here we want to help you so lisa i'm mindful of the time i'm going to extract a uh, commitment from you to come back and continue Absolutely. the conversation. Uh, I oh, also, I would love to. And I also want to, and I mean this profoundly, um, thank you for writing your book and speaking and sharing your experiences because it's only that way that, you know, the stigmas of shame and the sense of loneliness and the sense of, I'll, I'll, I'll put it, um, impossibility that there's no way that the situation can improve there's no way that there is a road out of here etc that these things you know don't disappear unless people such as yourself share um, what they've experienced unfortunately there are more and more people um, I note that there was a time when parents would lose a child and you know the obituary would be silent as to the cause parents are now coming out you know, to share what their sons and daughters were living through and what happened to them. And uh, there's so much work to be done um, in this area um, that has nothing to do with medicine, but has everything to do with the culture of how we look at some these issues and how we respond to them. And um, I'll quote, I'll use a Goldman term, de-risking the stigma, the shame, <laughs> the isolation, you know, et cetera. And by the way, your former firm, I, I had more than a, a few contacts uh, with your former firm, uh, both at the ah. U.S. Attorney's Office and at Goldman Sachs. So yeah. anyway, a great firm. Yes, yes. But, and I, I, you know, I love the people. And that was one of the things when we talked about the shame. Like, yeah. I wasn't trying to get anything over on anybody. I was just terrified they'd find out who I was, and I was so ashamed of who I was, I would have felt mortified. I looked up to them, I respected them, and right. I liked them, and I was fortunate. And yeah. thank you so much for having me. It's, no, it's no, really, but thank you. But Lisa, there's great. an important theme that you just uh, you, you threw out at the end, 
which is <laughs> le leadership of institutions, whether in the public or private sector, part of their job is to acknowledge that these things exist and they permeate through all walks and educational and income and professional levels of our society and actually to create a culture, which is in large part what your work does, where people can acknowledge that they're, they're dealing with things and that they're suffering and that they can do so without either a feeling that they've let people down or that, you know, if doing so would mean all sorts of, you know, retaliatory or punitive measures. So um, you got the last word in, Lisa, on that point. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I okay. look forward to continuing the conversation. Okay. Stay safe. Stay well. Day at a time. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay. okay. Thanks again. This is the Rain Insights podcast, which is part of the Rain Insights series, comprised of both virtual and real-world events, offering unique practical perspectives from Rain's leading experts in risk management. To learn more, please visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E Network.com. Thanks for listening.